Well, Malesh, welcome to Amsterdam. Thanks so much. As you've, uh, as you know, we have started this new feature at EFSAS where we are going to invite someone, either in person or online, depending on the Corona situation, uh, to have a free flowing discussion, hmm. interview uh, about current affairs, and to introduce you, of course, um, Malesh Daoud. He has been the chief of staff of Afghanistan's former president Ashraf Ghani. <laughs> <laughs> you have, you are a research fellow at the Barcelona Center for International Affairs and also a research fellow at EFSAS. Um, and we're gonna, as you might have imagined, going to talk about Afghanistan. No, thank you. I'm, I'm honored actually you're kicking off this format with me. And uh, before we start, um, I used to be the director of a project mm. for training nonviolent activists in Afghanistan before the collapse of the the okay. public. Okay. Unfortunately, uh, we were just trying to prepare for a situation like the one right now, and we were trying to have these activists trained in nonviolent resistance, but we had to terminate the project before we could complete it. No, so that that that's essentially the most beautiful thing about having this discussion is that Afghanistan is of course your academic interest, but it's also very personal. Yeah, yeah, because I come from the area. Mm. I've lived the biggest chunk of my life in Afghanistan. I still have family, and loads of friends, and obviously this is not a, an easy situation. And losing Afghanistan, particularly to Pakistan, uh, that's a kick in the gut. Uh, and it is literally losing it to Pakistan. I mean, no one can tell you anything, but um, the Taliban, particularly the Haqqani network, is, as this uh, former chief of uh, staff of the US Army, had said, the veritable arm of mm. the Pakistani army. So um, in that sense, uh, it hurts. And it also, it also hurts how people suffer. I don't know if you know, a couple of days, eight children died of hunger. Mm. in Kabul. Just a few days ago. Yeah. And that's not easy to... I, I went to this coffee shop. I live in Berlin. And um, the woman knows me. I, I know her. And she asked me, the one who's running it, about the situation in the country. Uh, and this had just happened. The eight children had just died of hunger. And I broke down. Mm. And she cried with me. So it is very personal. Very close to, to, to her heart. Uh, we beat the Scottish in, in the Cricket World Cup yesterday, mm. convincingly. And our, our whole team was crying mm. uh, because we are not allowed to even play our national anthem anymore because of Taliban. But they played the national anthem. They used our original flag, the national flag, and not the Taliban flag. Um, so it was such a sobering and uh, same time emotional moment for all the Afghans. So it is very personal, Jenny. So you say you say you've lost Afghanistan, or you Afghan people have lost Afghanistan to Pakistan, lost forever, never, never, and that is one of uh, the issues I've had with a lot of Afghans and particularly the leaders of the republic, mm. because I always told them dig deep. Um, there is this guy, uh, social sociologist uh, Vincent Yelindi. He has this beautiful book called The Deep Times Reckoning. Um, he's done his research in Finland with uh, nuclear physicists. 
And just thinking of millions of years, that nuclear waste possessed for millions of years. So they have to make sure that they safeguard the nuclear waste in a way that it never leaks. So they've looked at history and other and how humans preserved some stuff in the past. Um, anyhow, what I'm trying to say is that we didn't look at this as a long-term project. When Taliban were saying, oh, you have the watches and we have the time, mm -hmm. they were basically reading from our history. We, I don't know if you heard Mullah um, uh, Abdul Salam Zaif's latest interview with Liz Dusset of mm -hmm. BBC. Mullah Zaif was the, Pakistani, uh, the Afghan ambassador, the Taliban ambassador to Pakistan um, in the 90s. Um, and the first thing in the interview he says is that the moment we were attacked by the US, we knew we were going to come back. It would just be a matter of time. And it's, again, just a matter of time. And it's amazing that people like me, we predict Taliban will not last beyond two years. But people like Asfandiyar Mir uh, of USIP, uh, Michael Sample, uh, like all these Taliban observers, they don't even give them six months. Mm. It's incredible. How much time do you give them? Two years, max. They're losing the country right now. But People dying of hunger on the streets. Young children being sold by their parents. A girl was sold, a baby girl, for $500 yesterday. Mm. You know how much ISIS is paying now? Anyone who's going to join them, $500. You join ISIS, and then you fight against Taliban. But how, how is it, because now you give them two years, how is it, because I want to go back to how they came to power. Let's not go back to the 90s. We all know about that. I must say here that it's also, of course, the West was oblivious to, to, to Afghanistan from 1996 until 2001, until, of course, they were attacked uh, mm -hmm. in New York. Um, but how is it possible that, uh, you know, the biggest, the superpower of today, the U.S., with all its intelligence, all its weapons, all its budget, along with NATO countries. How is it possible that an insurgent group, a terrorist group, outlasts them and keeps fighting for 20 years and then actually defeats them and takes over the country? How can a, a group do that when it's not? It, it should have, you know, weapons don't grow on the on the trees in Afghanistan. How did they do this? Because the US doesn't have the experience of, of dealing with a space, with a physical space that is stateless. Mm. Afghanistan has traditionally had never a state as yeah. an institution. True. When it comes to the Soviets, they partnered with a movement, mm. with the leftist movement. And the movement continued mobilization despite the fact that they killed each other, despite the fact that there were so many divisions. But even the smallest part that remained after 1989, they continued mobilization. They continued mobilizing support, even if it was only 100,000 people. It was grassroots. Exactly. And these 100,000 people kept fighting against the Mujahideen, mm. and who used to be the proxies of the Americans and other Western countries in Pakistan too. Um, that didn't happen this time. This time, the U.S. thought, okay, we have a bunch of warlords from the northeast of the country, 
most of them not even living in the country. The only one who continued mobilization was Masood. Mm. And take him out of the equation, these guys were irrelevant. So you had this irrelevant bunch put together with irrelevant bunch, people like me from the West, who had no roots in the country. And basically, they stepped on the shoulders of the American and other Western countries' armies, and they thought, okay, this is, that's it. Whereas Taliban, on the other hand, they continued the mobilization and the literature on social movements. This is key on insurgencies. This is key. You continue mobilizing. Now we know that the 300,000 nominal figure that was given to us of the, the Afghan security forces, we didn't even have 50,000 security forces. And these 50,000, they were just mercenaries. People coming in because they have no other vocation and they just fight. And the moment the money stops, that's it. Or the moment they realize, oh, it's going another way, they stop. So there's no commitment. I lived in the Afghanistan of the 90s. I remember the three years President Najibullah stayed in power after the Soviets left. Mm. And one day he would gather tens of thousands of people, deliver feisty speeches, and tell them, you know what? We are fighting for this, the soul of this country. We are fighting for our ancestors. We are fighting for a country that has been there for 5,000 years. And he would be at the forefront. The Pakistani, you know this, you know, Junaid, and the Pakistanis in 1989, they attacked Jalalabad city mm -hmm. in the east. Like, they directly got involved, their army. You had all kinds of Arabs from different countries, including Osama bin Laden. They converged on the place. They couldn't defeat the army. The main guy who was running the war theater there, he was a friend of my family, Manuka Mangal. Like he called the President Najibullah and said, I'm, we are lo losing the airport because we don't no longer have bullets. Mm. The president told him, we come from the same province. They both came from a province called Pakhtia. How can you even, how dare you tell me you're going to be defeated? Do you have stones? He said, yes. Then he said, throw stones. Mm. And that, is, that was the key. Whereas right now we have these people, like including President Ghani, who just who didn't know about the realities of the country. You know, they had lost the country way before. Obviously, corruption plays a role. But is India more corrupt than Afghanistan or not? Is Pakistan more corrupt than Afghanistan or not? There's so many countries. I would say that. I would say that whole, that exactly. whole region is quite corrupt. Like there's so many, and that's only petty corruption that we're talking about. In the West, all the Western countries, they have an issue with corruption. Mm -hmm. But their states still stay intact. Yeah. Uh, so because the institutions keep them intact. Exactly. But we don't. Have, we didn't have those institutions. Mm -hmm. We still don't have those institutions in the country in Afghanistan. You don't have state institution, an entity that is going to be there. You don't have a judiciary like in Pakistan. Mm -hmm. No matter what happens, the judiciary will have its own culture. It will be there. You have uh, lawyers. Uh, lawyers core that is there, they even become sometimes in, into a movement and toppling governments, yeah. you know? That you don't have in Afghanistan. So all you can do is base your trust in movements. Mm -hmm. And two kinds of movements emerged in the 1960s in Afghanistan. The leftists and the rightists, mm -hmm. the Islamists. Taliban, they fought with the Islamist movements 
of Said Qutb and so on and so forth, who aspired to, 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 to the Arabs that they met in, in Egypt and so on and so forth. Now, they've continued that. And Taliban have that physical space. I don't know if you've read Jürgen Habermas, this German philosopher. He talks about public sphere mm. as the key to civil society. If you don't have that, then you have a problem. And that is also true for the movements. You have to have this physical space. In Pakistan, tell me about the Lal Masjid. Mm -hmm. Can the government, can the army enter the Lal Masjid? They cannot. They've ceded the sovereignty of certain physical spaces to the Islamists. And this unholy alliance between army and the, the military and the mullahs, they use it then against countries like India and Pakistan. Whereas our civil society, people like us, the liberal forces, their space was shrunk day by day by the Taliban and the Islamists. And the problem we had, the people who were in power, they were threatened by these liberal forces. So they also made, made sure that they shrunk the space for mm -hmm. them. We couldn't mobilize, the Taliban continued to mobilize. And how much credit do you give? For example, you talk about Pakistan. How much credit do you give Pakistan? Or credit in the sense, uh, from their perspective, of course, in getting the Why Taliban Why wasn't Khan in Tajikistan a few days ago? Hmm. Tajikistan is a tiny country. But they've taken an issue because the Tajiks have been driven out of power mm. and they say that we don't have enough representation of Tajiks in, in the Taliban authority, right? Mm -hmm. Because Pakistan is now that even a few hundred kilometers of space, again physical space, can be crucial mm -hmm. to any future insurgency. By in Pakistanis Pakistan. you mean the military establishment? Particularly the military yeah. establishment, but you also have people like Mir Yusuf now as mm -hmm. the national security advisor. Which Mead, I would count within the military yes, establishment. Yes, but Mir has a PhD in social movements, mm -hmm. so he understands this. Mm -hmm. He understands this that you use this space for resource mobilization, and I've seen him do a presentation on resource mobilization for the social movements and for political opportunity and, and constraint structure. And if you look at the literature of the social movements, these are key. The moment you're pressed in one physical space, like in the case of Afghanistan, we kept pressing Taliban here, but they would go out to Pakistan. They have their medical services there. They have their businesses. If the Haqqanis are more invested in Pakistan than they are in Afghanistan, mm -hmm. the, 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 the land that they have there, the businesses that they run there, they will never give up those for Afghanistan, that's and, it. And is it true that de facto now the Haqqanis are more, uh, you know, pulling the strings in Afghanistan in this in this in this Taliban government than the Talib Taliban itself? Um, we uh, the division is we used to call this one part of Taliban the diplomats, mm -hmm. the ones who were based in, in Doha, even before they were based in Doha. Even when Taliban were power in the 90s, you had this one side of the so-called diplomats. Just, just as in between, you know, many people might disagree with you calling the Taliban diplomats, but I, I get your point. Yeah, because these people, you know, when they had interactions with non-Afghans mm. and not Pakistanis, then they realized, oh, there's a much broader world that we can tap into. Mm -hmm. So they were more willing to listen to other Afghans, 
and the international community. So, and then when Malab brother was, he was transported from Pakistan, after he was released by Pakistan, he's from jail to, to Doha, uh, he also got immersed in, the, in, in this structure, this cultural structure. In Doha, almost all of them have four wives, all these Taliban leaders. Mm. Because all of a sudden they realize there's life beyond thinking going, go, of going to heaven, you know? Because the, the way the Taliban mobilizes, it's like, I don't know if you know Richard uh, Halkute. Mm. Richard Halkute was this uh, British thinker kind of guy in the 16th century. He pushed very strongly for colonizing America. And the main reason was that he said that Catholicism in the shape of Spanish inquest is posing the main threat to the Protestant or Lutheran movement. So we have to make sure for the sake of our religion, our mindset, that we occupy more physical space at the same time we have more resources. And that's the thinking the Taliban have in this century. That was five, six centuries ago. In this century, Taliban are, they're not thinking about the worldly life. All they are thinking about is the otherworldly life. This is temporary. That is permanent. Mm -hmm. We are going to go there and we are going to strive for that. So how do you fight? How, you talk about social movements in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. How do you fight this ideological corruption? And it's not, it's not only, Let me first not only in Afghanistan. tackle the issue of the Haqqan network. So, mm -hmm. so what happened was that these other the, the, the so-called diplomats, they saw, oh, there is life mm -hmm. in this temporary existence. Oh, you can enjoy. I met a uh, uh, foreign minister of religious affairs in Berlin a few days ago. He, he told me I had this elderly man who came from the village. And um, he said, uh, can I, we take ablution before we pray, right? Mm -hmm. Can I do it in your bathroom? When he entered the bathroom, there was warm water. It was clean, everything else. He was like, oh, you live? <laughs> and I, he said, yes, I live. So even these small amenities... They're so important. Anyhow, so these people saw that and they saw that without the world and to some extent considering what is going on around us in this existence, it's just senseless. Whereas the Haqqanis, their whole mobilization apparatus is based on making sure that you confine people in these secluded spaces where you indoctrinate them that this life means nothing. It's the afterlife. It's the afterlife. And they've like tapped into this. Trust me, you know, I've, I've seen people from places where they go like young men because they cannot have premarital sex, you know, in order to be able because and they cannot pay to have a bride in order to at least have to experience this once. They, they're like, I'm prepared to, to go and be a martyr, you know. Mm. Um, so that difference has existed. And then... Um, what happened was that the one side, the diplomats were saying, we are not going to enter Kabul, we are going to negotiate with President Ghani and the rest of the political actors, we are going to agree on inclusive, inclusive government, that would be acceptable for the international community, whereas Haqqanis were sitting in Kabul, and that triggered Ghani's uh, uh, fleeing uh, from Afghanistan. And then Ghani's realized, uh, Ghani and his crew 
realized, um, oh wow, they're already here because the Haqqanis were already there. Mm-hmm. Khalil Haqqani called on the previous former national security advisor. He said, I'm in Kabul. Mm-hmm. What is the plan now? So that division was already there. It has become more profound now. We know that they've taken the more kind of uh, leading role in, when it comes to security in the capital. Uh, we know uh, that the Helmandi Taliban, who are actually the founders, you know, like Helmandis and Kandahar, are the founders of the Taliban movement. Um, when Faiz Hamid, the ISI chief, was in Kabul last time, when they, he basically he um, coordinated the, the the attack on on Panjshir uh, Valley, uh, that uh, the Helmandis left Kabul, the leaders, and said, well, the guest. Uh, he messed up everything. So there, there are divisions. Was he therefore, Faiz Hamid, now promoted and given the Peshawar Corps? He didn't take it, did he? No, but he, he seems to be a front runner to go to the uh, to become the next chief after Bajwa. Yeah, but we don't know that. I mean, that's like the big story in Pakistan mm-hmm. right now, because there's this clash between Bajwa who wants an extension. And obviously the term was removed by the Pakistani parliament a few months ago, years yeah. ago, anyhow. So he, they, he can be indefinitely uh, Pakistani military chief. Um, but Imran Khan, the current Pakistani prime minister, has taken an issue with this because Imran Khan is kind of sure that he cannot win another election unless he has the military heavily involved in rigging it. And he doesn't see Bajo as the man doing it now and he sees Faiz Hamid as the man who's going to be more compliant with that. So yeah, that's, that's another, another story. story. So you talk about the social movements there and you talk about this radicalization which is in essence prevalent within the region. You know, you see it in Bangladesh, you see it in, in India, you see it in Pakistan. But you had in Bangladesh a few days ago, you had thousands of people converging on the street doing what? saying make the state secular. secular. Yeah. So, so you see, you, you have the counter-mobilization. Yeah. In Sudan, the military takes power, you have the counter-mobilization. We don't have the counter-mobilization in Afghanistan. The women who are on the streets right now, they are doing the job right now. Even if there are 10 women, and you see how a big dilemma this has created for the Taliban. Taliban have never faced anything, anything like this. They cannot even hit the women anymore. Because number one, they're like, why, how am I going to hit a woman? To them it's like. And then even if I do, and they come back, we do it, they come back. What's next? If you talk to... But this is of course, this, it's very good that the women are standing up. But this is of course not, um, you know, this is happening in pockets. You know, you have 10 women, like you said, maybe 20 women somewhere else. You have some people who... This is of course not... A coordinated effort within Afghanistan. So how do you see it? So this is coordinated. This is a problem. If you talk to the Egyptian activists, and the moment you tell them the Facebook revolution of 2010, they go mad. They're like, no. Remember this guy, Ahmad was standing in this square in 1996, and he was protesting. He was just holding a placard. But that began the whole thing. And then Ahmad was contacted by Mahmoud. Mahmoud was contacted. So you see this really succeeding? Oh, obviously. 
And, and how will the players, how will the players like the Haqqani Network, the Taliban, the Pakistani military establishment, who have invested, of course, a lot of money, blood, sweat and tears in getting the Taliban back into power, how will they react when this picks up? The way they react to the Pashtun Tafos movement in Pakistan. So they're going to crush it. They try, they're trying, but mm-hmm. they're failing. That's the difference. When you had the Khudai Khidmatgar movement of Bacha Khan in Pakistan, mm-hmm. as long as it said non-violent, non-violent yeah. they couldn't crush it. That's why they're they're succeeding in probably crushing it in Balochistan. Exactly. There it's violent. That's one Bacha. thing, but also they don't have the numbers. Yeah. The Baloch, if they were as big as the Pashtuns, mm-hmm. it would have been our... Pakistan would have not lasted, mm-hmm. that I can tell you. But the problem is that the Pashtuns have the numbers. Look, the Pashtun Tafas movement only has Waziristan. Mm-hmm. The only region where the Taliban couldn't do any fundraising last year was Waziristan. It's incredible. And they put Ali Wazir behind the bars, so what? You know, put us behind the bars. And it's the same goes with the activists in Afghanistan, especially the ones who are there. Mm-hmm. And then those who reverberate their messages like us here. Okay, let's 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 continue with this thought. Okay, let's hopefully this succeeds. Hopefully it works out. Hopefully these these movements. It's come only together. the only way, Junaid. Okay, what? But the but, violence has failed. The violence. Then let's go further. Mm-hmm. What happens then? So these Taliban mm-hmm. will be, you know, we hypothetically speaking, they will be rooted out of Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. Where? Because you're talking about the fact that. For them, they, this life doesn't matter. It's about the afterlife. It's about becoming a martyr. You have seen this, for example, when the Soviets left. Scenarios, yes. So, so where will they yeah, go? But this is the, because they have to die somewhere. Yeah, but that's why, that's why you have to expose violence mm-hmm. and its limitations. The limitation is tomorrow ISIS is going to be the prevalent insurgent group, right? Mm-hmm. What, what next? So this continues. Unless... You have this middle ground in the society where you have these non-violent actors who say, no, you can do whatever ideology you have, you know, you can take action, but without violence. And the moment you try to impose your will on us with violence, we resist you. You see it happening some places, like you said, Bangladesh. You see it in places in uh, in yeah. India. You even see it in some places in, 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 in Burma, but also in, in Pakistan. You've Incredible. seen the Noyesh movement. You've seen, Incredible. for example, we, we talk about our, uh, our friend uh, Afra Seab Khatak, who, who has been leading this, or, or, or the PTM uh, people. Um, so whom do you see Women. becoming the face of this? Women. And that's the beauty of it. Right now, the women, because they know the Taliban cannot crush them. And it's they who will be the biggest sufferers if the Taliban yes, continues to exactly. And the women have been exposed now. They've been exposed. like In Afghanistan of 80s and 90s, mm. not only, I mean, we have this ballpark figure of one million people who have died. Not only people died. But the country was deserted. Like I lived under Taliban in Kabul. I would ride my motorbike and all the Taliban were looking at me like, what is this young chap doing in Kabul? Mm. Something is wrong. Is he a spy? Like the spy chief of Taliban right now, mm. he was after me in 2001. I still don't know why. 
I had to escape to Pakistan. You know, because they were like, what is this guy even doing here? Like, he's a young guy. Why should he live here? And that's exactly the problem. And that's also one of the problems with the people who are going out right now. I'm not saying they shouldn't go out. They should go out. But it also depends on how we continue the yeah. struggle. One. Number two, the people who are there, let them be the face of it. Let them take the lead. And don't hijack their struggle. Become a small component of that struggle. And that's what I'm trying to do. And that's why when I was leading this project on, on nonviolence, it was such a key project because we were practically giving them the tools they could use against terrorists. Mm. You know, people, the scholars of social movements, they take issue with the word of terrorist because they say we human beings use violence at times for whatever purpose. One of them is achieving our political goals. So you're a terrorist one day, like yeah, our Mujahideen world, and the next day then you're not. Mm. I take an issue with this. Some people are, and particularly this, this comes back to this Islamist Dubani and then Bravely movement yeah. of South Asia. They are intrinsically terrorists. <laughs> and the reason for that is because they see violence in this world as the only way to achieve, to, to have the best of life in the, in the, next. In the afterlife, you know? Yeah. So they're intrinsically violence from the very micro level from their families, you know? Like the child cannot recite the Quran in the right Arabic dialect and he just smacks the child. Why didn't you do it? So it's, 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 so would you say it's partly religious but partly political as well? Yes, of course. I mean, religion is politics. I mean, no one yeah. can tell me religion is not politics. Mm. It's always been politics. But when it comes to the Islamist movements of South Asia, mm. they particularly became pertinent because, uh, number one, the international forces, yeah, the international forces, like the Western countries, they emboldened them. Can you imagine the number, the, the, the numbers, you know, like 500 million from, dollars from Saudi Arabia, 500 million from, from the U.S.? You know, the equipment, you had these missiles that they were given to them. Mm -hmm. And then obviously the Taliban and then the Pakistan military. Yeah, basically the rapid Islamization of the pa yeah. of Pakistan played a big role in it. Like you, like you Just know. imagine if the Pakistani military today doesn't try to concede some of its sovereignty to the Tahrik al of Pakistan. Mm -hmm. What will happen? That's it. Pakistan is going to be on fire. The military wouldn't be able to control this. But it's a fire they lead themselves. Yeah, but they also know how to, ma to manage the fire thus far. Mm. Thus far, they know how to manage the fire by ceding their own sovereignty. By telling them, yes, you have these physical you spaces. Have masjid, you exactly. Have this... You have these resources, you have these business ventures. If you put small children on the street who are asking for your donations, it's okay, we are not going to touch them. And if you're abusing small children, and your madrasas, we're not going to take them to courts and stuff like that. But in the... What, give you one example of a mullah who was like, you, you've seen the videos of mullahs abusing young children. Mm -hmm. Have they been convicted in Pakistan? Mm -hmm. No. Because Pakistan is the country that has conceded socially, culturally, and physically, politically obviously, 
the space to these Islamist forces. And where will that end? So that's a very difficult question because it will all again depend on the resources on either side. So, no, no, because as until today, until now, like you said, they have been very successful in managing this. Like if it becomes too much, they will send these people out to Bangladesh, to India, to Jammu and Kashmir, to Afghanistan. Will that continue happening? No, but if you look at the Iranian example, mm -hmm. Iranians, uh, the proxy forces they created in Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, all the way to Yemen, mm -hmm. you know, they've countered the so-called American-Saudi alliance very effectively. But the Iranians have the oil, so they can fund this. The Pakistanis, they either got the funding from the Western world, and now they're banking on China to bankroll them. So it depends on many factors, but one of the main factors is how long they can continue to provide the resources. And then if the size of pie becomes much smaller, can they still divide it between them, the military, the, the, some corrupt politicians, even media houses, and the mullahs? Can they continue to do that? And that's also a problem in Afghanistan. I don't know if you've read Paul Collier. One of the main structural issues that you have in countries that go to civil war is that the economy as a unit is too small. And that's why the logic of different states coming together in the United States, different states coming together in India, different states coming together in Germany, was to make the economic unit so big that it becomes self-sustaining. Mm -hmm. And that's the problem in Afghanistan. Economic now that we talk about China, China has, of course, its big economic powerhouse. It has its stakes in Pakistan. Mm -hmm. And it's looking for exploiting stakes in Afghanistan, mm -hmm. and it's no, it's not looking for that. Is it? Is it? It's cozying up to the Taliban government. It's only the only issue. I mean, this is the problem. I, I was part of a project with the CEO of the Barcelona mm -hmm. Center of International Affairs. Uh, we looked very closely at this. The Chinese have one interest in Afghanistan, and that's security interest. Mm -hmm. They don't want the Chinese Islamists to go to Xinjiang. Exactly to cause any problems, even a simple knife attack. They haven't until yet, until now. It, it, it bursts the death myth. But the latest attack, the mosque attack in Kunduz, that was conducted by ISIS, that was by Chinese national. Mm -hmm. So Taliban, despite the promises, will not be able to deliver on this. Mm -hmm. Because the moment you say to the Uzbeks, to the Tajiks, to the Chinese, you cannot go against your own countries, mm -hmm. they'll turn on you. And they have already turned on them. And it's a huge issue for the Taliban. If Taliban, ISIS was controlled to a certain extent in the past few years because it was Taliban, the U.S. forces, the mother of all bombs was dropped on them, and the Afghan forces all fighting together against them. Now it's only Taliban. Yeah. And the so-called over-the-horizon presence of the U.S. And that's not going to do the, the, the trick for them. That's one issue. The Chinese, yes, they are big economic force. They've now stopped all the projects of the, the uh, CPEC mm. because their engineers were killed, 11 of them, I guess, because they, they're asking the Pakistani for a $38 million um, kind of, you know, distribution money, so, sort of. And that's, like, the thinking still remains small. Mm. It's not as big as the U.S., and then obviously U.S., in this Western pocket that we have, 
This is massive. And they also have this ability to mobilize trillions of dollars immediately and get things done and anywhere in the world. The Chinese are still, they have very small thinking in that sense. They, they are thinking, trying to think big. It will take time. Remember, these countries, through their imperialism and colonialism, um, they had to learn all this stuff in centuries. And the Chinese are lagging behind. Like, you can, how can you ask your biggest partner in the world for $38 million? Which peanuts for them. Which, which supposedly should be peanuts mm -hmm. for them. But they're not overlooking that. They're like, no, 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 no. Give us this money. Um, unless you do that, we are not going to start the project. How do you see, for now that we talk about China, how do you see uh, other countries in the region, like India, in mm -hmm. this whole paradigm? That's an interesting point. I mean, um, we already know that the, the, and this is my very personal information, that the um, Iranians have already allowed the so-called national resistance to open offices in two of their cities. Mm -hmm. So Iran is turning back on Taliban. The Russians, they're keen on opening diplomatic channels more broadly to Taliban. That is not happening because the South Asian states, particularly Tajikistan, has an issue with it. And no matter how small Tajikistan is, the Russians still listen to them more than Taliban. So do you think that India should follow the Iranian example? No, the Indians made one massive mistake, was the moment Taliban took power, they stopped all the visas to Afghans. So they, their allies, their the hardcore allies, they... I think the embassy was just wrapped up. No, not only that. They mm -hmm. promised online visas, but then, then they didn't issue any visas. And even those people who had already the visas, their visas were cancelled mm. because of the fear that anyone can come in. Like they could have taken, they could have taken the risk of a few anti-Indian elements making it into India, but it could have scored a much bigger point here. They failed there. That's one thing. The second thing is India's strength lies in Gandhiism. Mm -hmm. And that is non-violence. Mm. You know, you cannot fight this fire with fire. You can fight it with water. Mm. So let Pakistan and Iran use all these violent proxies. Let India support political movements. Exactly. Nothing else. Training. Awareness. Incredibly, they can do incredibly. When I tell this to Indian audiences, I'm amazed they scoff at this. I'm amazed the Gandhiism has lost ground to what we are, see we are seeing in India today. I'm amazed they don't see the depth of this. And that's you, what the, you, we were just talking before we were beginning, the Pashtun, uh, you know, Gandhiism of Basha Khan, uh, it is still very much prevalent there. Potent, right? extremely potent. And and you see it with the PTM movement, for example. You you see the communication of Taliban before the takeover of the country. The only problem they had was with this movement. They were like, we cannot operate in the no, of, course, of this movement. Violent movements are because they, they are exposing us, mm -hmm. releasing our footages, operating in Pakistan. They are not allowing us to fundraise, you know. Um, we appear somewhere with guns. We are 10 people, there are 2,000 people. 
whom we are going to kill first. So this is this is this is the role of the regional. How do you see, for example, the Americans have left, uh, the West has left. They are in the sky. <laughs> they are always they, they they are always in the sky. Probably here up as well. Yeah, exactly. So, what's their role? What should they do? Well, I guess there is a, an element of vengeance right now. The Americans are trying to prove to the Taliban that you may claim that you've defeated us, but you are going to starve to death. Mm. But that's the Afghan population. Do they care about that? Probably not, but collateral. in essence, that is what Asad it is. collateral damage. doctrine also comes directly from the U.S., so collateral. The main thing is the U.S., again, we cannot just take it as one entity. Mm. If you have 20 senators in Senate saying, no, 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 no. First, accountability for what happened. Mm. Number two, change of policy. So you don't know what is going to happen with the civil society in the U.S. We have a much bigger lobby for Afghanistan, a liberal Afghanistan, in the U.S. than we did in the 80s and 90s right now. We have generals, we have former uh, government officials, we have bureaucrats, we have politicians, you know, who, who are pissed at what is happening in Afghanistan right now. So only the Biden administration is not going to be able to make a policy that is going to, and they have, had a self-defeating policy of removing their forces without considering other voices, and you know what is happening there right now. And even there are right now movements saying, because of this mistake, we should not be elected within the Democratic Party. So, so you have this problem in the U.S. Obviously, countries like Germany, Germans have told the Taliban, you know what, you adhere to the minimal minimum of basic rights, and then we'll recognize you. Allow girls to go to school, for example, you know. Allow some free media, and so on and so forth. So, because they are afraid that the, the economy will go down so badly that you will have an influx of refugees again. Mm -hmm. So it's so again about them. It's about their own interests. It's not about what is happening there. In Afghanistan. But the, the issue they are again overlooking is that this is going to blow up. Sooner or later, it's going to blow up. But you have these voices in the, in America as well now coming up, which are saying that you know, uh, change of policy you talked about to actually move away from the dependence of the West, which it had on Pakistan in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. When they talk about moving away, moving away towards where? No, th this is a problem with the US. Again, the US is looking for Pakistan through the kind of one window that they always use as a one-way window operation. Like under Musharraf, only through Musharraf. Mm -hmm. That's not Pakistan. If you put a few generals and the entire organization of ISI on your sanctions list, you've already made sure that you've given such a boost to the liberal forces in Pakistan. And you and I know, Junaid, that some of these movements, some of these political forces in Pakistan are incredible. Mm -hmm. Some of these leftist movements are yeah. incredible. Leftist movements, especially. And then, then you have like parties uh, like the Pakistan People's Party, you know? No matter how much they've been crushed, I mean, obviously they've made mistakes, but still they're there. They're potent, they're strong. And uh, lately, Nawaz Sharif's Pakistan Muslim Nawaz, and especially Nawaz Sharif himself, and then Maryam Nawaz, mm -hmm. you have all these entities. 
You just have to change the dynamics of the relationship. Don't go through these violent Generous. forces. Yeah. Why do you have to always partner with militaries in this part of the world and all other parts of the world? So it's in, it's actually institutionalizing exactly. democratic institutions within Pakistan itself. Right now they're saying we are going to help Afghanistan, but through NGOs directly to the people, not going through the state. Do the same thing in Pakistan. Sanction its military and work with the civilians. And you will see within 10 years, you will have turned the whole region upside down and positively in the sense that you would have, like Pakistan has not only choked Afghanistan. With Iran, they are not going to, Iran is a, that's a very complicated issue. So the, the Americans are not going to work with Iran. But Pakistan has choked us. And on the other side, you have Russia. And again, that's very complicated. So not only that Pakistan has choked us, it has closed the main route between South Asia and Central Asia. And again, coming back to Paul Collier's point, just imagine if you economically integrated this region. You and I are still talking about the food in Peshawar. Yeah. Just imagine, you know, if that is transported beyond Peshawar. It is in, within Pakistan, but it's like in India. Mm -hmm. Incredible. The Pakistani Prime Minister is wearing the Peshawari chapris, you know, mm -hmm. the sandals. And that is also, by the way, by Khudayk al by Wachahan, that was the foundation of that entrepreneurship was laid there. So what I'm trying to say is that the Americans want these quick fixes through single operation, single window operations. And it's always the violent forces. In Afghanistan, they did the same thing. They always sided with the Islamists. Always. Because they're the most violent forces. With the Mujahideen, right now with the Taliban. And then they expect us... Uh, to be a country that is not going to cause problems for the rest of the world. You. So you see, you see, for example, another. Uh, uh, you know, you were talking about Muid Yusuf, the uh, the NSA of Pakistan. He has said that another 9/11 can happen. What, what what would you say? A guy comes out on the street. So you, we are in Amsterdam right now. Somebody walks the street with a knife, manages to kill ten people. What else do you need? Mm -hmm. Things are changing. The dynamism of terrorism is different now. You don't have to plan the way 9-11 yeah. was planned. You, you need just one crazy guy who would buy into the idea. And would he buy into this idea much more because of the fact that the, Af the Taliban today yeah, of course. have defeated another superpower? Of course, but people will also travel. Mm -hmm. This is the problem. Pakistan is the window to this. I don't know if you've seen this latest Deutsche Welle documentary that everything goes back to yeah, Pakistan. I saw that. So you have these people traveling. They were, even at the Taliban, this was happening. But before that, during the Afghan jihad was happening, you will have people traveling to Pakistan and then crossing into Afghanistan. And all of a sudden, they have this epiphany. Oh, I could be someone. Mm -hmm. You know? I could be For Malawi. God and also but for this world, for others. And then they will come back and conduct these operations. But again, they will also acquire skills. Mm -hmm. How to make a bomb. How to fire a gun. That's a skill. Getting used to the boom sound of a gun. Mm -hmm. That's a skill. People don't understand it. But people who've gone through war like me, we understand it. It takes guts to be in an environment where there's so much of 
loud booming. We've seen that in Kashmir. For We've seen that in Kashmir, but on Afghanistan it was on another scale. Yeah, true. We had ballistic missiles raining on us. Yeah, and so you have to. So so people will get used to this. So anyone with the idea, I mean, obviously, media stuff has a different angle on this. He's saying this because they would like to see Taliban uh, in Afghanistan ruling the country in the long term. You know, I'm seeing it from this different perspective. The, my perspective is that number one, no matter how much Pakistan military tries, Taliban, a movement like Taliban, will not be able to hijack a country of that size, let alone the whole region. You know. Um, and then if you don't want, because the main issue in this part of the world is security and then the refugees and immigrants. So your security is not guaranteed by a piece of paper you've signed with Taliban in Doha. Mm-hmm. So, so how, how do you see other groups within the region who have a similar agenda, how do you see them taking inspiration from this win of the Taliban? I imagine, I imagine... Uh, terrorist groups like the Lashkar, like the Jesh, like uh, the Jamaat Islami in Bangladesh, they thinking that okay, if the Taliban can no, do this, inspiration is not only important when it comes to the material side of it. Then it's more important. So do you think there is There's a working mechanism? An, an internal report of the Pakistani military mm-hmm. in which they mourn about the fact that the Indians flooded Kashmir with so many security forces, sometimes so poorly trained, but still a guy with a gun, <laughs> that the cost of people, particularly Arabs, crossing into Kashmir and then trying to cross back into Pakistan was so high that it was unsustainable. Whereas in Afghanistan, it was the other way around. It's an internal report, you know, very few people have seen it, and I've seen it. Mm-hmm. So the cost was possible because India, as a, as a country, it could endure it. It could pay for it. Mm-hmm. But when you have a country like Afghanistan, we don't have our own resources, we're dependent on other countries, and they have come with so many conditions that you cannot do that. Just imagine if you had continued with 5,000 US soldiers for the next 20 years, mm-hmm. what would be the, 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 the situation of Taliban then? Mm-hmm. So you continue this for, I don't know, 50 years yeah. more. What is going to happen? So inspiration is not the only important thing. Obviously, it has given inspiration even to some crazy leftist movements as far as Brazil and so on and yeah. so forth. You know? But it doesn't mean you can replicate that because there are so many other factors, you know? Now that we talk about Kashmir, the, um, I think the spokesperson of the Taliban has said that they have the right to speak about Muslims all over the world, including Kashmir. He conveniently... Why is, it, why is that a surprise? He could, no, he could, let, me get, let me get to my question. He conveniently left out the Uyghur Muslims in Xinjiang, of course. Now that they have talked about, uh, about Kashmir, in my personal opinion, and, and I want you to have a comment on this, I don't see the Taliban itself going to Kashmir to fight, but I do see an ideological spillover effect within Kashmir, and I also perhaps see some working mechanisms being uh, strengthened between Kashmir, India-focused groups and the Taliban. What do you think? Maybe, I mean, the thing, what Sahar Shaheen said was also out of spite, because India not only stood with Masood, 
but also then the 20 years of, of uh, the anti-Taliban forces uh, post-2001. So that is out of spite. If India hadn't done that, then they would, might have, Syed Shaheen at least, he might not have mentioned this. With the Chinese, they're not doing it, but it's the leadership that's not doing it. Mm -hmm. Every foot soldier of Taliban, they have a problem with this. When we are told that our Taliban is a nationalist movement, it just drives us crazy. It's not. The first time they took the city of Kunduz in 2015, they were like, we are marching on to Central Asia now. It's not a nationalist movement. It's an Islamist movement. Islamists intrinsically want the whole world to be Islamized, number one, and then to adhere to a certain political authority in their own minds, you know. Come, come back to my question. What do you see happening with terrorist groups? Kashmir Again, as I said, Indians have flooded. Indians have flooded Kashmir with so it many. Still takes one crazy guy. Yeah, I know, but that will happen. That is not a big issue for the Indians. No, but could it lead to? It, there could be an uptick. There is an uptick in operations by the Pakistan Taliban in in Pakistan right now. I don't know. There have been like fifty attacks in the past two months after the takeover of Kabul. But could such things bring India and Pakistan to a war? If um, another, if 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 another, well, the problem is you have Modi in power, mm. so there is some unpredictability. So the strategic restraint that was the kind of uh, more well, that's operandi, out of the window now. More operandi. I don't know if it's out of the window yet, because mm. we haven't seen. I mean, there have been attacks under Modi against India. He hasn't gone all all the way, but he has way. retaliated more than previous governments have done. Yeah, but as much as not to press Pakistanis off to an extent that Pakistanis will use their nukes. So will they? With the current military, no. Because they know it's the end of Pakistan. Not only the end of <laughs> Pakistan. Yeah, not, not only the end of, not also literally, but also figuratively. Mm -hmm. Not only the end of the Pakistan military, but the end of Pakistan. Yeah. Let's say. Because like these strategic nukes, where are they going to use them? Because the first point where the Indians will enter would be Lahore. Are they going to nuke Lahore? Because mm -hmm. that's yeah. like, they're like, you are using the strategic nukes in the battlefield, you know? But if there's, if, if, if so they, the, where is the battlefield? Like, where is the front line? But if, if, they see, if, they, if they see Lahore getting out of their hands, they might use it. No, but that's the, the end of Pakistan. Mm -hmm. But then it's, know it's, it. it's, it's, like you said, it's not the end of Pakistan. You have an afterlife after this. Okay, but at least in this world, we're talking about now, it yeah, is the end of Pakistan. Yeah. So the issue is that we, like all these doctrines, they're still there. Mm. You know, killing by a thousand cats of Pakistan is there. Strategic dips is there. Strategic restraint is there. You know, the only country that didn't have a doctrine was Afghanistan. And I had issue with the previous government. It has been kept, in war for the last four But years. I kept telling them, you know, they could have done that. Now that you I come can back show to you, you, you have kept telling them there are accusations of corruption on the Afghan government. Uh, you have been the chief of staff of Ashraf Ghani. Yeah. How much money did you make? <laughs> well, I was before that. I worked for an NGO that mm -hmm. paid me twice as much as he did. Okay. And even when I went there, he didn't have the money to pay me. And can you? So, do you find yourself in the fact that Ashraf Ghani? Like many people say today, 
You have seen him closely. Yeah. Was he corrupt? No, he was becoming corrupt. When I was there, what, what he realized in 2009 that um, he couldn't be the president one day unless he has two things. Number one, the money. Um, and number two, um, the backing of President Karzai was in power. So he was very clear about this. And he was becoming corrupt. And he, I was hearing from some of people very close to him saying we are going to make, I don't know, $6 billion, $7 billion to make sure that we run in 2015, 14. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we win the election. That's, that's the thing. And then he got the money. Yeah, unfortunately, he got it through people like who are his biggest critics nowadays from the former uh, finance minister, uh, Omar Zafilwal. You know, he, he, they went to these African business people, like al group, like Bayat, who's yeah. running the uh, Ariana TV. You know, they got, and I know for a fact that the money they got, at least $30 million were left in their coffers. So Ashraf Ghani was still sitting on that unaccounted $30 million when he became the president the first time. And then in 2000, um, when the second term here in 2019, 18, 19, anyhow, he at least extracted $170 million from our Ministry of Finance, especially from, from customs. Um, and that's why he couldn't move the people there because they all paid the money, $170 million. And he even sent a message to the to his later foreign minister, Hanif Atmar, who was running against him. He was like, this is the amount of money I have. How much are you willing to pay? Um, so he was basically intimidating him not to run. So do you think the, 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 the notion that corrupt Afghan politician Part of it. enabled the Taliban takeover is it. exaggerated? No, but Taliban are also corrupt. So Hafan exactly. Hafan is again. If you use it for mobilization, yeah. Fine. So, like you said, in South Asia, corruption. You know, you and I know if you want to get a birth certificate, we need to pay. No, but the Pakistan military, right? Highly corrupt. I don't think any Afghan can claim can come close to a Pakistani general being so corrupt. You know, that's not an issue because they're also using part of the money to continue this mobilization. Mm-hmm. Like if Ashraf Ghani had used the money to mobilize forces for the cause, fine. Because corruption is part of the everyday life. It's, it's the reality. It's the culture. No, but it's also in many, like in these societies, if you look at the corruption and the way petty corruption, again, the big corruption still exists in the Western societies. Yes. But the petty corruption, the way it was tackled, you know, it took centuries. So it will take time. It's not only cultural, it's just greed that is intrinsic to us as human species. Mm-hmm. Um, so corruption was part of it. The problem was that they would take everything for themselves. You know, the Pakistani generals would not do that. The Pakistani generals would allocate a certain amount of money to make sure the status quo stays intact. Whereas the Afghan politicians failed in this. Yeah. You know, like in the, the so, days that the cities were falling, Ashraf Ghani was paying millions of dollars to people like Adam Muhammad Noor of of Balkh, uh, Ismail Khan of Herat, um, to safeguard the cities. It was too late. So you need to be like we have the same, but you know, you know, even while being a thief, you need to be smart. Of course. Yeah. 
So, uh, of course, you cannot buy off FIFA's services immediately. Mm-hmm. You have to have the structures in place beforehand. And that's the problem. They didn't use the money smartly, obviously. And they're also so stupid in doing this corruption that they were caught all the time. And like you let's, you know, we're, I think, you know, coming to an end uh, of this talk. So let's take it a, a, a bit further. How, how much, you said in the beginning that you don't see the Taliban outlasting more than two years. There are, there are people who say... If this situation continues to be the same, yes. if they are recognized by the world, if the world is not going to... Uh, for the Afghan state uh, led by Taliban. This is the main thing. Okay. So you... If Taliban become the proxy forces to fight for the US, then they would be able to fight for as long as the US continues to support them, but you will not solve the problem. Mm. So you will have the Taliban in power, like the Mujahideen are in power now, fighting Taliban, Taliban power fighting another Islamist force. Mm. So that's not going to go away. But if, the Tal- if they continue with this kind of embargo on Taliban right now, if the region also responds in the same way that they are responding right now, like Pakistan, remember the last time they just went right away and recognized the Taliban, you had Saudi Arabia and the UAE come in and recognize the Taliban. And I was in Afghanistan with Saudi Arabia, was generously paying for Taliban's war machine, you know, like at one point they sent um, 500 Hilux. But are they looking for, for recognition? Oh, they're, they're craving for it like anything. Mm. They, they, they cannot, every second word that comes out, out of their mouth is recognition. <laughs> every second word. Because they know, they understand. Look, they now understand I'm here the in, in Europe. They see it firsthand that people are selling their children on the streets of Kabul. And obviously they... They know. And according to their ideology, it's wrong. Mm. Because so they, they go to the, to, to the uh, time of uh, Khalif Omar. Yeah. Because they aspire to be that kind of Khalifa mm. who was known for his justice mm. and fairness. Because he was leaning back uh, to a wall and he could hear that a woman was trying to cook something for her children. And then he brought her food. Uh, exactly, and then she, they were crying, they were like, we are hungry now, when is it finished? He gets into the house and says, why don't you feed them? And then she, she says, come and see what is in the pot, and it's only stones. And she's like, I'm trying to deceive them so that they fall asleep eventually, get so tired that they fall asleep because I don't have food for them. He goes back... To go further in, on this, in, in, you know, and that is that's where, where it comes from, in, 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 in Khalif Omar's time, um, a guy was sentenced for stealing food and as you know the Islamic sentence for that is cutting off the hands and actually uh, Khalif Omar intervened and he said uh, you can't sentence him for this because it's my, it's my responsibility exactly. to provide food for these people exactly and that's the problem and their own soldiers they cannot feed themselves you know how they operated in the past they were in the villages and the village constellation is very different in Afghanistan. The village constellation is, you go, like, if I travel through Afghanistan, I go sit in the mosque in the evening, when the evening prayers are done, and the mullah turns around and says, are there any guests? And they're like, 10 people, like, yeah, we are the guests. And then like, okay, you go with this guy, and he will feed you tonight and give you a room to sleep, and you go with this guy. That's the village constellation. This is what Taliban used and abused because they would go into a house and say, feed us. 
That's it. In the cities, they cannot do that. Mm. It's because not the no city food. culture. And also, there's no, there's food. no food. But it's also not the city culture. You will not allow anyone to get into no. your house and say, give me food. No. So they're starving. Taliban themselves are starving. Mm. And sometimes they turn this around as a propaganda saying, look, we're so clean that we are prepared to work for this authority without even having food on our place. But now it's getting too much. I mean, so, so when the world talks about Taliban, Taliban 2.0, it actually is Taliban 2.0, not in terms of their ideology, violence, that has not changed. No, not. It is in terms of the fact that now the Taliban understands the world and is craving, as you said, for recognition. Yeah, so particularly that, this uh, diplomatic side of it. So that they can continue to rule. The diplomatic side, one guy went to Doha, he had one wife. And then... Down the line, six years, he has four wives. All of a sudden, he realized, oh, wow, these are also Muslims. Mm-hmm. The look at them. Mean. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Look at them, the way they live. Look at their women. Look at their hotels. Look at their cities. And actually, the as, they, as the Arab continues, the real Muslims. I have a friend who was part of the Taliban movement. He's based in Europe now. He told me once in conference, he was like, look, convince the Europeans to allow the Taliban to just roam around their streets. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> and you, you will see this cultural change within the movement. It will be that's, I had a, once I had this really <laughs> crazy argument with a Taliban member in Kabul. I told him how we went into space also to the moon. And he got, he went crazy. He was like, what are you even talking about? He didn't even know that we had stepped on the moon. He said, you, you're, you're a non-believer now. You know, you've lost everything. How can you even say that? But he stayed on Kabul post-2001. And I was talking to one of his relatives a few years ago. He told me, yeah, his children went to universities. His daughter is a medical doctor now. This guy who denied science to that extent, he allowed his own daughter as a talib to go to the university, run on the American money, mm. become a medical doctor, a scientist per se, and now treating people. It's funny you say that that that, that friend of yours told uh, to let the Taliban roam their city uh, cities in Europe, because I remember me saying somewhat the same thing or having this discussion in Kashmir. There are sections of people in Kashmir who consider Pakistan their Mecca, and and, and 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 this discussion was, you know, I, I told some Indian friends, why don't you give every Kashmiri a visa for Pakistan exactly. and let him roam around the cities of Pakistan, and then he'll come to know how much of a Mecca it is. I have an Indian friend who's a diplomat. He's in the, he's in the foreign service of, of, of uh, Delhi. Anyhow, he once told me, he said he was based in a country in the West. He started issuing visa to all the Sikhs who are doing all these demonstrations in the West against uh, these Khalistanis, against the mm. India, Indians. He said, I issued the visa, said, against policy, I'm issuing the visas so that they can go to Punjab in India and see what is going on there. When they went to Punjab and told people, why aren't you fighting? The people, they were like, what is wrong with you? We have a Range Rover standing outside of our house. Why do go we- back to wherever you've come from. We are fine. Look at our lives. What else do we want? And this changed the whole thing so drastically that the whole 
policy of the Indian government was changed, allowed all these Khalistanis, they were like, come, see, for yourselves, how we are persecuting the Sikhs. And then tell us, and then fight against us. And that's, that, that is a very strong point, obviously. Obviously, Afghanistan is not in that kind of situation. No. But again, it's also a matter of exposure as anything else. So what do you think should happen with the current uh, frozen reserves of Afghanistan? No, never. Never unfreezing for Taliban. Mm-hmm. And said, spend them on these nonviolent movements. Support them. Support the women. Now is the time. It is the key time to turn this around for once and for all. It is to support these women. Take them to the extent that they've never seen when they oppress the women, you know? Put so much pressure on Pakistan and all other Pakistan that the Taliban have that anything that happens to these women, we're going to take account of them. Fund them heavily. Mm. But smart funding, you know? Provide training. Right now, social media is pervasive in Afghanistan. Facebook is pervasive. Five million users, you know? Flood them with videos of nonviolent tactics. Use organizations such as the International Center for Nonviolent Conflict, which is a US-based organization. It's crazy that we have all these amazing organizations that can help you so brilliantly. And so you brought these some of the most corrupt contractors into Afghanistan so that they could supply bread to, to the Afghan soldiers. No, it didn't work. Violence doesn't work. You cannot fight this fight with fire, you know. So your message is I've... nonviolent movements and let the women of Afghanistan yeah. lead it. Yeah. Yeah. Because they, they failed, right? They, they were defeated. The U.S. was defeated. The 42 countries, its allies, were defeated. The Afghan forces that were fighting against them, they were defeated. Mm-hmm. All the Afghan men were defeated, collectively. The only one that are standing their ground right now are the women, right? Because they know that if... No, but the men are also losing... Look, they were checking our pubic hair in the 90s, the Taliban, whether we have, we have pubic hair or not. Mm. So the men were also losing a lot. You know, I had my head shaved because I was listening to music. So, so it's about the courage and also the wisdom. We men don't have them. At least the Afghan men don't have them. No, I agree. We men in general don't have it. And especially in Afghanistan. And we prove it time and again. So right it's the now. women, it's the mothers, it's the sisters of Afghanistan who can change and turn this around. Yeah. And you don't have to also assign them these these roles, mother and sister. No, no, no. They are individuals in themselves. So give them agency. Exactly. They already have the agency. They've already taken the fight to the Taliban. Now support them. Support them and smartly. And that would be the end of the Taliban. But in a positive way. You are going to transform this much more positively than you try to outro their their authority and then they were back. Hmm. This Finally, people will have, this is in our repertoire as human beings. Anthony Giddens, this very famous British sociologist, when he talks about the structure of the society, he says the structure has a duality. Mm. Number one, we aspire or do as we are told by the structure that is in the society. But our actions also inform the structure. Mm -hmm. So now we have to transform the structure. 
And our imagination, there's another sociologist who calls the sociological imagination, should be that we transform the structure. The only way you can transform it is like Bacha Khan. Like everybody thought Pashtuns, the only way they can use is violence. The only thing they can use is violence. Bacha Khan turned that around, created a structure that still persists. That is the main template for the Pashtuns in Pakistan. Incredible. And so strong and so educative. The Taliban have their own educational, Dubandi education, right? But this education is also so potent. The, 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 his Azad schools, they're still there. They're producing students who are countering this, this darkness on an everyday basis. Do the same with Afghanistan. That was uh, what I was trying to do in Afghanistan. But I haven't, haven't given up. You know, the network of Pashtuns and of, from Pakistan and the Afghans that has been created in Europe Look at some of the, the protests that they staged against the war in Afghanistan in the past few months. Thousands of people came out. That didn't exist before. We took inspiration. We took it from Bacha Khan, and we took it from PTM, from Manzul Pashtin, Mohsen Dawar, and so on and so forth. We took inspiration from their women, from Sanai Jaz. If we had one Sanai Jaz in, in Afghanistan today, it would be incredible, but they are coming up. We have this incredible woman in Kandahar right now hidden. She's running schools for women right now. Her name is something Durani. And she's appearing on Western media every day, challenging Taliban. If I had the choice today, I would put her as the head of the country and tell her to run the country. If she can stay in Kandahar, in the heart of, heartland of Taliban, run still run school for women, what is wrong with us men? They're getting beaten up every day. They're getting killed every day. They still continue their struggle. We men are too cowed for this. We are not white like them. They have this persistence. So that is the, the, the way to go. And you can change this. You can transform this peacefully and more positively and for a very long time, very, very long time. And finally, you will have political, social political forces like the ones you have in Pakistan. Again, Pakistan is a country that is a menace to, to Afghanistan, but its military is the menace. You know, I have much The people more are equally, equally victims of the policy of the Pakistan. Exactly, military. I have much more in common with people, like even some of the political forces in Punjab, like, uh, what's the name of the guy, the, this leftist... Uh, um, leader of, he's also a professor in the West, Amr Ali Jan or something. Mm -hmm. But people like him, then I have with Sohail Shaheen of mm -hmm. Taliban or any other member of Taliban. And so, even there it was, you know, women like an Asma Jangir. Asma Jangir. Again, I, I talked about about uh, uh, Sanai Jaz, Gulala Ismail and all, all these. Malala. I mean, come, how can you not love Malala? It's incredible in that age and right now, what she's doing. So, and to be honest, I mean, I, I worked in Afghanistan under the Taliban. I worked in then the subsequent governments of Karzai and Ghani, so on and so forth. The people that I always saw as the future were the women. And that is happening right now. And the world should be watching that. So we can, we can end this by saying that the world, whether it's the Western world, whether it's regional players who support
who want peace in Afghanistan and who don't want the Taliban to rule Afghan people should come together and support the women of Afghanistan in this in a non-violent fight because they are the heirs yeah. and they carry forward the legacy of Bashar Khan, yeah. Gandhi. But not only to bring peace to Afghanistan. To the region. Not only peace, tolerance, liberalism, democracy. If you want to, you, if you want to manage the China's threat to liberal democracy in the future, mm-hmm. the non-violent movements is the way to go. Tell me if you had strong non-violent movement in Baruchistan like PTM today. Yes. Would the Chinese be able to continue their work there? No. If PTM today turned their attention to, to CPEC, that's it. That's the end of it. And that's what the Western world doesn't get. Especially the Americans don't get this. And you are the country of Martin Luther King. You are the country of BLM. You're of the country, as I said, the ICNC, all these amazing institutions that you have. You're the country of Erika Chenoweth, of Stephen Hagen, or some of the best scholars of, of nonviolent movements and nonviolence. And you support proxies. You support violent people. You support very tiny proxy violent forces and structures instead of going for massive, incredible, tolerant, liberal, democratic, secular forces who can bring about the security that you call the you say you need in this part of the world. They can bring about that change. And they are there. More lasting, and they're there. This, this, despite the media coverage uh, in the Western world and other places, which appears to be saying that there are no democratic secular forces in South Asia, in Afghanistan, in Pakistan, but they are there. The status of Ali Wazir right now, mm-hmm. an elected parliamentarian from Waziristan, right? Is in jail. How many months? If San Suu Kyi was in jail, what would have happened? Hell would broke why is the U.S. not using this as an opportunity? Why is the West not using this as an opportunity? And this guy has tens of thousands dedicated followers. If the Pakistani army doesn't concede in something, you can always use this threat so effectively. Like the threat of any violent force, the only difference is that this is non-violent. The only difference is this, is this is tolerant. And it has been shown in Pakistan. Sheikh Mujib Rahman showed it. Exactly. By Shahan. But this is the problem. Like the, the Bangladeshi secession from Pakistan is only now seen as a war. Yeah. They say the Bangladesh war. It wasn't a war. It was a non-violent revolution. Yes. By democratic with, means. Exactly. With a very small insurgency, violent insurgency, and then intervention by the Indian forces at the end of it. But it was... a it Brilliant. started as a non-violent movement. Exactly. Non-violent revolution. Mm-hmm. And then the history of Pakistan. How many times have these non-violent forces... Look at the lawyers' movement yeah. of 2007. How can you not be impressed by it? Yes. The Musharraf, whom all the political forces, all these huge political parties could do nothing about, he fell because of the lawyers' movement. Yeah. He fell because of Smaj Jahangir, because of, uh, of Kurd and um, the guy from PPP. Anyhow, so, so what I'm British colonialism fell, in yeah. essence, because of a non-violent movement. Racism in the U.S. 
because of non-violence. South Africa, yeah. Erika Chenoweth and Maria Jestefan have this book. It's called How Civil Resistance Works. Mm. And they show over a period of 100 years how many non-violent movements with maximalist goals have been successful and how many violent movements. This success rate of the non-violent movements has been twice mm. that of the violent movement. So like these, like these terrorists have training camps yeah. where, they, where they teach people exactly. how to make bombs. Let's have training camps where... And you already have the templates. The Azad schools of Bajahan, yeah. the Azad schools of Bajahan, they teach them from the, not they only gardening, who teaches gardening in Pakistan, what school system? Mm. Apart from this dry, boring British stuff. Mm. Azad schools, they teach them gardening. And that is meditation, my friend. That is non-violence. But also at the same time, they show the aggressive side of non-violence, where it's taking action. The moment you see something is wrong, you take action. But you don't hate your enemy, like Gandhi would say. You just say, this is wrong. You don't kill your enemy. You just say, you're wrong. Let's talk about it. And this takes time, but eventually it makes a structural exactly. change from bottom up in society. Yeah. And that's why that was the failure of our Republican state. And the reason why it fell so, so, so quickly, because it didn't have the structure, this grassroots structure of mobilization that they could count on in the event of American soldiers going out. They didn't have it. Because they didn't adhere to an ideology. You see? Like, I convinced Ashraf Ghani to read Bacha Khan's book. He didn't... He read the book. He mentions the books of, I don't know how, so many Western scholars. He never once mentioned the book of Bacha Khan. All his life. Mm. Because he didn't buy into it. Okay, I will tell you this now. His main advisors on, on public relations asked me if I could help them with creating a strategy for countering Taliban. I created a strategy for him. I, I wrote one for him. How to create this hybrid structure between his, their own official channels and these non-violent movements. And then I run test, test cases for him. How, like, the Taliban would run a trend in Twitter, they would reach 20,000 trends, you know, tweets and retweets. We would do them 70,000. And we paid no one, Junaid, because these people were already mobilized. Mm. You just had to set a direction. You just had to talk to them and say, what is our common goal? And they would step in. At one point, we were training top in Germany. So I told him, the potential is so great. Replicate this also in your war strategy. It takes a network. I don't know if you've read this piece by General McChrystal. Mm. It takes a network where he talks about how Taliban have created, or the insurgency have created a network that is fighting against them, and how they are now trying to create the same network. The only thing he got wrong was that he, the network he created was of a bunch of people who just wanted to get paid and get enrich themselves, that's it. So even if violence was not shunned, they could have at least seen who is really rooted in the society. I don't know if you've read this piece again on the fir very first um, drone attack the Taliban conducted in Afghanistan mm. against a guy, Qul, in the province of Takhar. And why they targeted the guy? 
Like they invested so much money, they bought the, this Chinese drone for $60,000. They put so much thinking and time and sweat and blood in this to make sure they get this guy because they knew he was the only guy in, his, in whose presence they could not take the problems of Takhar. And that was key to their strategy because they didn't want another Masood era resistance developing in the southeast, in the northeast of the country. So if they take Takhar and Badakhshan, so they take the north first and northeast first, and then they can just come from the south and take every other place. And they killed this guy using so much of their resources because they knew he was rooted. And this is what the Americans didn't get. This is what our governments in the past didn't, didn't get. They really didn't get it. The power of mobilization, the power of education and mobilization, these education institutions, the madrasas, why do we keep talking about madrasas? Because why don't we have the Azad schools? Exactly. Why we don't have the equivalent of madrasas of liberal education? And that's why they're shrinking it. That's why Taliban are taking, getting rid of the liberal and secular mm. texts. They're shrinking the spaces so that you don't have the space to operate the way they do. But you have to create that space the way they've done it in Pakistan. You have to have people like Bajah Khan. Mazur Pashtin in Pakistan doesn't drive around with bodyguards. Mm -hmm. He says, come for me. Pakistan military Taliban, come for me. Because he knows if they come for him, there will be a 200,000, I know, threefold increase no, they, in they, his they, followers. They, they didn't kill Akbar Bukti until he, of course, went violent. Yeah, because they know if we do it, then we have a much bigger problem at our hands. Mm -hmm. So they're not going to do it. Whereas our politicians would have hundreds of people running up and down with their heavy guns and armored cars. Again, they, they couldn't be safe. They were not safe. A single suicide bomber would come, blow himself up and kill them. They didn't get this. The security doesn't come in this shape, especially in that part of the world. Mm -hmm. You have to create that social system that gives you that safety. Not the hardware that you get from the US and the training that your soldiers get from the US. And this is the story that you don't get in the media nowadays. I know you've been on my tail for the past five months, but I just needed this time to digest the pain. The pain was way bigger than what was going on. It's still way, it's so big. So big. But that's probably the reason why you can come up with novelistic ideas to fight this terrorism. You know, many people would say it's novelistic, it may be impractical, but I think it, it, in this part of the world, until and unless you change society, so, society narratives. Yeah, but the, that's why the, 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 terrorist, the terrorist cannot live, yeah. whether it's Afghanistan or Kashmir, until the society does not support him. And when, when it comes to society, again, if you look at all the political movements, they don't have more than a thousand, some thousand people mm. who are hardcore members, you know? And they use these people to mobilize, again. Okay? And that's what Talman, how many Talman do you have right now? They started off as a few thousand, I think at the height they were 20. Right now even, they, they, they cannot, they don't know how to fight the war in, in the Northeast right now because they are so few. But that is enough. Yeah, that's enough. For taking power. And half of that non-violently is maybe enough. 
Again, Erika Chinovit and, and Maria J. Stefan, their book proved that if 3.5% of population of country comes out on the streets, they will take power. Mm. Can you imagine? That's 3.5%. And again, it starts with a small event. The snowball is important. Yeah. These Egyptian activists, they, I had one of them talk to our activists in Afghanistan. It was brilliant. And he just used, there's this book by uh, Sul about eventful history. How, how events become transformational notes in the history. And he used that book and then proved his point and also Sul's uh, theory by talking about Egypt. How one person was standing with a placard and then that became two people. And over the years, yeah. starting from 1995 or 1996, and then finally in 2010, you had the Egyptian revolution, and then the Western media comes in and says, oh, this is the Facebook revolution. Because mm. they don't get it. No. Again, don't use the drones to attack Afghanistan right now. What, what do you mean by the over-the-horizon capability? You killed your own ally in the very first attack you conducted. Don't use that. Support these movements in whatever you, way you can. And listen to people like Erika Chunovic, listen to, again, Veronique Dudway, listen to Selene Fethagen, listen to um, Hardy Merriman. These are incredible people. They're white, they're own, your own people, so that you can understand. Don't listen to me. No, listen to these people, and they'll tell you how to do it. Smartly. Do this. In the 15 years' time, you'll have solved this problem. Hands down. If that is not solved, I'm giving up my profession. Malays, thank you, thank you for, for speaking to me, um, and let's indeed end on this on this particular note which you have made throughout this talk, is that you can only win from terrorism, from hate, with the principles taught by Bashar Khan, by Gandhi. Bottom up, find your equivalent of madrasas where you teach people non-violent movements, and in Afghanistan, particularly at this moment, support non-violent movements and support the women. Who are the main actors, non-violent actors right now. Yes. Thank you so Thank much, you. Thank you. Take care.